Good morning. How are you guys? Uh, we're going to go ahead and start as has been our custom here uh, as of late with Psalm 119. A reading from Psalm 119. This is the section, subsection titled Pay, verses 129 through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Father, we thank you again for this uh, wonderful opportunity we have to gather together in your house on your day and to read from your word. Uh, we just pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts, help us become more and more uh, a reflection of your son. We love you. We thank you. We pray you would bless our time here together in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, well... Um, what I want to try to do here, did, did anybody bring like their answers to the questions? Anybody prepared to respond to any of them? Any brave ones? <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. I just, if you do, I would love to hear your thoughts on things um, as you're engaging with the material. Uh, obviously, if we had more time, I would do a whole lot more of that. I would encourage a whole lot more of that. Um, but I'm just going to basically kind of go through uh, his outline, point out just a key, few key concepts, um, try to clear, simplify some things, and then um, we'll see, what, see where we end up. Uh, the whole emphasis of this lecture was bringing to, bringing to mind what, uh, the idea that there is a theological center to the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament uh, individually and collectively, that there is a theological center. In fact, he says here in the very first uh, statement, the million-dollar question, what is the Bible about and how is that message communicated? Um, I think this is a very important place for him to start. I agree with that. Um, he wants us to understand and I be able to understand and identify the significance of there being a theological center to the Bible. Um, and as, he'll, as he makes clear in here on more than one occasion, the Bible has a theological center, it has a thematic framework, and it has a covenantal or canonical structure. Um, and he says, this is the million-dollar question. What is the Bible about, and how is this message communicated? Um, so he gives a practical example. If you're in an elevator with someone, um, they want to ask you, hey, what's the Bible about? Are we prepared... Um, to be able to explain that um, in, in whatever context, in whatever situation, in whatever audience. Are we prepared to say that plainly um, and, uh, and simply? Um, and sometimes that can be harder to do than we think if you're not used to doing it. Um, but it's important. Um, it's important for us to be able to have that sense of understanding or confidence I think someone told me a long time ago, you really don't understand something well enough if you can't explain it in very simple terms. 
and I struggle with that sometimes. Um, I like to look at the complex things, but do I understand them well? And I understand them, but do I understand them well enough to explain it in simple, understandable terms? And that that's a challenge. Um, so because the Bible is so complex in ways, um, as he explains in here, um, it is very complex. It's, there's much diversity of literature um, in the Bible, and it can be complicated. I think just for an example, I included again this week, if you'll flip back to page 11, towards the very back of today's stuff. I passed this out a week or so ago. It's just a, a page and a half, and it's the Old Testament in 10 minutes. This is Dr. Jason DeRoshi. He's a professor of Old Testament at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. And he stood up and quoted this from memory in front of a large assembly of people there. And um, it's, you guys should watch the video where he does this. They actually have someone who did the New Testament version as well. And I found it was fascinating because um, he, he divides it evenly into the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he, he goes through the books and shows not only what each individual book was about, um, but how it fits into the greater whole of the, of the message of the Old Testament in particular. And so it's, it'd be, it would be good as we go along to kind of revisit this and read through it and see if you're gaining more understanding about the parts and the whole. Um, then he moves on, uh, and he, makes, he, makes the, the, he notes the fact that the way in which you think about the Bible uh, is the way in which you're going to interpret it. Um, my tendency sometimes is to look at the Bible in a very, very technical way, and to analyze the literature, and analyze the structure, and analyze the... You know all those all these facets of the text, but there's a sense in which um, you know we have to keep that balance. That's why I would encourage us all, both to study personally and privately in in a devotional sense, as you're just reading through the text and learn to meditate upon the text, right? To pray over the text as you're reading it, and then to also be in community and study it together, where we can get a little bit more technical, a little bit more analytical. And the two together are, can be very complementary. Um, he moves on to, or he asks a couple of questions. How would you explain the content and structure of the Bible to someone in 15 to 30 seconds? And that's a goal of this series, for us to be able to do that, both for ourselves and to others. Uh, and can um, and, and, and compare our answer both before and after this lecture. That was kind of... Is pretty high expectations for us, isn't it? Um, number two, he says, the challenge is diversity in the Bible. And I touched on that briefly, but he, he, he speaks to the fact that um, there is, um, without, there are, we all have presuppositions about the text, about the Bible, about the content, about the meaning. Um, and those presuppositions affect the way we approach the text, understand the text. But he says, what is going to be the one thing that shapes everything for you? He kind of gave mention. He said, well, I had one pastor. I sat under him, and everything was about mission, you know? Every, every passage or every text. or Everything was about this uh, concept. This was the, the heartbeat of the text. This is what was really, he was really pushing it. It's a lens through which 
they call it hermeneutical lens, but a lens through which you're reading the text and, and, and you're having that kind of drive your meaning. And he says, what's going to be that one thing for you? There's so much diversity of literature in the text. He mentions it, you know, all the 60, 600,000 words written in three different languages, um, you know, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, if you do the English Bible divisions, um, written over a period of almost 1,500 years from when we believe uh, the Pentateuch was written, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy, and then uh, when we believe the last book, Revelation, John's Revelation was written in 90 AD. That's 1,500 years, three continents, right? three different languages, multiple authors, some anonymous. I mean, how do we drive... A sense that there's, a, that there's just one unified voice through the text, that there's one one unified message, um, and, and he says, uh, for him here, and uh, I'll be on page three, the top of page three, he appeals to unity in authorship, the idea of a big A author and a little A author, right? The Bible is written 100% by man and 100% by God, right? The the writers of the old te- the writers of the scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and he brought he brought us some texts we mentioned a week or so ago along those lines. But he says, in light of this diversity, he appeals to the unity of authorship. Um, and he says, you know, we have he talks about the diversity of the text, and particularly he says we have a diversity of types of revelation. We got divine words, we have divine acts. You know, we have um, multiple genres um, of literature in the Old Testament and in the New. And for another example, if you'll just flip back to the very back page, page 14 and 15. I know the text is really small on page 14, but what I wanted you to see, if you have a little magnifying glass or something, take a, take a deeper look. It's, it's, it's interesting. But what this is, is this is like a, you'll see on the far left, there's prose, there's poetry, there's prophecy. And inside of each of those major divisions, there are subdivisions and subdivisions and subdivisions. And all of these are particular types of literature in the Old Testament alone, right? That's the diversity of literature as a, as a, as a piece of literature. That is kind of the, some of the levels of diversity that you have, Um Within each one, uh, on page 15, you're going to see, I just narrowed it down to just narrative, which over here is just that very, the, in the second column on the very top is just that little block. In just narrative, we can consider things like plot, characterization, the scene or setting, the narrator's point of view, dialogue. All of these things are important when you start to really break the text down and understand what is being said and how it's being said and the way it is being said, uh, and what that communicates. If you really want to dive into the text, we can go as deep as you want to go. But it, this is just a first glance to let you know it's complicated. It's complex, in a sense. But it doesn't have to be overwhelm, overwhelming. And I don't want you to be able to engage the text in a robust way and not to be intimidated by that. Um, so, you know, there's little things like narrative style of the writer, you know, his use of dialogue or irony or repetition, you know, inclusio, chiasm, things like that. There may be new terms and stuff to you, but as we go through these te- each of these books of the Bible, the Old Testament, 
I'll pull out key verses that show some of these things and give you an example about how to see it and read it and understand it, uh, how to notice it when it's there. So um, continuing on there on page three, the middle part of page three on um, uh, point four, other attempts at identifying a theological center. Um, so he, this, he's going to start to make his argument now for there being a theological center of the Old Testament or the Bible as a whole. And he says, we have single divine authorship. Point two, when you think about all this diversity, um, he said he, wants, he points out three key words. The standard formula for divine authorship in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Now think about what we just studied in the prologue, the preamble in the prologue to the Ten Commandments. God spoke. What, 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 what did God do ten times in Genesis 1? And God said... Right? And God said, let there be light. And God said, God is speaking, right? And so we see that again right here. He points this out. Uh, we have a single divine author, which gives unity to the text. We see this played out in, in very plain, we see this very plainly in these statements in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. Um, and, and he says this first takes place in Exodus, um, and it takes place when Moses. Um, um, meets with God on the mountain. And this is just prior to, uh, not, much further, not, not much prior to, you know, uh, after the Exodus, we had the Ten Commandments. So all this Old Testament narrative and stuff, we see these same concepts about authorship, divine authorship right there. Um, in fact, he says it occurs over, this formula occurs over 293 times in the Old Testament. But then he points out, I thought this is interesting, he points, it, he points it out that uh, 153 times in the book of Jeremiah alone, that's significant, right? Jeremiah was reluctant prophet, and he makes sure that you knew that it was, it was God's words, right? Not him. Um, but so if you add this introductory formula, uh, if you add to that introductory formula, thus says the Lord, if you add to that and the Lord or Yahweh and, or and I said, that's 210 times more, right? Um, so there's basically 472 different occasions in the Old Testament alone where, it's set, where that is said. That's uh, almost 10 times in every book of the Bible on average. He's saying, hey, this is me speaking. I got this. Wake up. Listen. Right? Um, that's what um, <clears throat> Miles said. And he moved on to the New Testament. He says, okay, well, in the New Testament... Um, <clears throat> the God who spoke in the Old Testament becomes the incarnate God in the New Testament and no longer is the, me- is the Old Testament messenger formula required of this person. We don't see, um, uh, you know, thus says the Lord, but we hear truly, truly, I say unto you. Right? How many times do we see that in the New Testament coming from Jesus himself? You have heard it said, but I say, or it was written... So, if you think of that, um, I think one, one, just for an example, we won't do it today for lack of time, but um, if you'll go to Luke chapter 4 or in Matthew 4 and you read the account of the temptation of Jesus, this is occurring just prior to, his, to the beginning of his public ministry, <clears throat> and read through that passage, the dialogue between Jesus and Satan. Read through that dialogue and focus upon Jesus in his humanity, in his person, right? 
and then read back through that dialogue again, recognizing that who he is, right? He is the word incarnate. In fact, you know, you know, references made in there, you know, um, to make this stone, turn the stone into bread. Well, this is going back to the Old Testament narrative, right? In the, in the Exodus, of, in the Exodus, or in the wilderness, and they were, God was teaching them, you gotta depend on me to provide, right? Well, he was there, right? He is both 100% man and 100% God. Those are his words. He was there. When he quotes scripture, he is quoting it from Deuteronomy and other places. When he is quoting scripture, in, he, in a sense, he is there truly as our, uh, as our representative, as the new Adam. As, you know, he's speaking and he's obedient to the law, his law. But he's also, you've got to realize, he is still at the same time 100% God. And so it's almost like you can see two conversations going on, right? He's saying the right things. Don't tempt the Lord your God. But he is the Lord God, right? It was written. Well, he wrote it. He is the word incarnate. He wrote the, I mean, so <clears throat> there's a sense in which you, when you start to look at the text, and it, 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 it comes alive on multiple levels, but you see how rich that makes, it can make it. Not that there's two meanings, but the meaning is much deeper than we see on the surface. John, in John's gospel, is a master of trying to get you to get below the surface level of the text and to engage in these bigger concepts he's driving home to you. And when you see that, it comes to life. I hope that will for you. But this is just an example of something you can do. Um, hopefully we'll get to, to visit that more later. Um, he mentions that um, here in uh, C, lack of consensus, there is, no evan- there is no current evangelical consensus on uh, these things, whether there is a center uh, of the Bible, uh, uh, what the structure should be, um, things like that. And he says, that's the million dollar question. Is there a center? And he gives his answer um, here in, in section five, the million dollar answer. And he appeals to Acts 28. Um, and he say, Paul, at this point, there's the end of the book of Acts. Paul is under house arrest. He's in Rome. And <clears throat> he appeals to this. He says, Luke, who is writing um, this account, is summarizing Paul's teaching in Rome for a period of two years. Paul was there. And, and he says here in Acts, uh, on page 5, Acts 28, verses 23 to 31. When they had appointed a day for him, Paul, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers, from morning till evening, and expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves... They departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. And he goes on, he's quoting from Isaiah 6, right? And this is Isaiah's commission from the Lord. So Paul is at the end of, he's in Rome, it's the end of his uh, public ministry, end of his life that's coming soon. Uh, he's in Rome under house arrest. He's speaking for two years, and he's speaking. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he is teaching people about the Lord Jesus Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. That's what they had. Now, here's other references. It says, hey, bring the parchments. Yeah, right? <laughs> and stuff. So there were texts that were being written, but at that point in time, were they, were they considered to be 
you know, uh, scripture? Were they canonical? Were they widely dispersed? I mean, there's a lot of questions in there. He is teaching from the law and the prophets, the law of Moses and the prophets. And so um, it, when you read, it, I put Isaiah 6, um, 8 through 10 here for you to kind of, to, to, to be able to see the, the text reference to the Old Testament text. So he's summarizing and he's making these two points. And this is what Miles is saying is the emphasis or the, is the, is the uh, biblical precedent for his argument that the scriptures are A, all about Christ, that they all point and move towards Christ, and that that is their end goal. And so he says that the person and work of Jesus is the best theological center, not just for the Bible, but the whole Old Testament. And he moves on here on page six, talk about the person and work of Jesus, that that is the theological center of the Bible. He mentions some Old Testament writers who've written on it, and it kind of shows that there's disagreement and uh, what their argument is, um, it kind of got probably got a little bit fuzzy for everybody when he starts talking about some of those people you might not be familiar with, and some of the arguments kind of get a little bit um, uh, not as concrete. But he says uh, he's basically going to argue. Miles argues that um, the Yahweh of the Old Testament is the second person of the Trinity most of the time. Um, that those the- theophanies, uh, the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, that in many of those instances, that it is uh, the second person of the Trinity that, that is there, is Jesus. Um, and that would be a great thing to study sometime. I hope we get to um, theophanies and things like that. Um, the Trinity, complex. Um, so uh, we'll be careful there. But um, that's his thesis. Not only that Jesus is a theological center for all biblical revelation, but for the, both the Old and New Testaments. Um, he, off, he mentions over here on page 7, he'll mention uh, some other writers like Graham Goldsworthy and some different books. Um, but he says that um, Jesus is not only just the center of your Bible, he's the center of the universe. And that's what the text itself is saying. So the text itself not only places Jesus at the center, but it lets, the meaning of the text lets us know that he is the center of everything, right? Um, he's the one thing that explains everything. And he quotes some very, uh, very well-known scholars who talk about this. I think I would point out here at the, end, towards the bottom of page 7, uh, he's talking about um, what this one writer, Alec Mateer, an English author, said. He said... Um, no, or no, not so. It was Jesus who came from the outside, the author, right? And he goes, as the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, who was raised from the dead as the Son of God with power. Did you notice what I just said? Remember a week or so ago, humiliation, exaltation, right? I'll read it again. As the incarnate Son of God, humiliation, who was raised from the dead as the Son of God with power, exaltation. When he wants to summarize it, that's exactly what he did. And that is, that is acutely biblical, right? Um, I thought that was interesting. He uses some big words down here, words you may not, may not have heard of before. Christotelic, Christopantic, or Christocentric. So all three are about Christ, right? And um, if I can sum this part up in simple terms, I'm going to do my best in simple terms. What he's saying is that the central theme, or the central theme about was the kingdom of God, but the central uh, object, the central message, the central point of emphasis is on the person and work of Christ, right? 
all of the Bible, both old and new. But that the way, the tr- like the, the, uh, the arc, the narrative arc of the Old Testament is moving in a direction that is pointing towards Christ, right? Towards his uh, incarnation, towards his crucifixion, towards his resurrection, towards that humiliation, exaltation. It is moving to us closer and closer in a deeper and deeper understanding of who he is and the work he is, has done and is doing, right? And then towards the future in Christ. So the whole thing is about him. The whole thing is moving toward him. So that would be Christocentric and Christotelic. Telic is from telos, right? The end, the purpose, the goal, the trajectory. So it is all about him, Christocentric. It is all point, moving towards that understanding of that, Christotelic. And he says Christopantic, which um, is basically um, it's all uh, all concerning him, like meta narrative wise, right? Um, so um, he makes kind of some of those points and uses terms you may not have heard of. Um, they're really not that scary. Um, then on page eight, uh, he he goes through the word counting game, and what he's trying to do here with the word counting game is he's trying to point out. Um, statistically, that the use of personal names in the literature of the Bible is similar in what you would see in some ways to what you would see in other types of literature, um, where it's the the prevalence of um, particular personal proper names uh, can give you insight into the focus of the text. And he shows you that there is, that not only is um, Yahweh in the Old Testament, Jesus in the New, and in their personal names, but also in the titles given to them, Lord, Adonai. Um, all, if you combine all those uh, personal or proper names and the uh, use of titles, by far they outweigh any other characters in, in the text. It's about them and um, him. And... Um, and so he makes that argument from statistics, which is kind of neat if you're into statistics. Um, and he shows, I thought this was uh, very interesting. I'm find, if I can find it. Um, like, how can I not make a note of that? Oh, one thing I will point out, I mentioned that, he, that Miles was a dude in baseball vernacular. Say Miles is an Old Testament dude. And actually, on page eight in the middle, he actually says it. He goes, I'm a Hebrew dude. I'm always doing Hebrew stuff. And I'm like, hey, he even knows he's a dude, right? But no, uh, if I could find the one part, he, may, he mentioned something I thought was very interesting. He's talking about... Hmm. I'm sorry, I thought I had that noted. It's part where he says um, the meaning of Yahweh... I don't want to. I want to do him fair justice here because I thought he explained it really well. In short, um, so I use simple words here. Um, I should, if I understood it better, I'd be able to. I'd be able to explain this right now. That's I got to work on that. So he basically says, when you look, we, when we think of the meaning of the word Yahweh, we often hear it translated as um, uh, "I am who I am" or "I will be." Well, it will be. Um, but he said, in essence, it is uh, God with us, right? It's like the Emmanuel principle. We say Emmanuel, it's God with us. 
It's the. It's. I, I really would like to find his where he where he says it. he says it so much better. And then when you look at um, Jesus, it is God with us, Emmanuel. Um, okay, here it is, the bottom of page nine. Thank you, thank you. Um, we know that Jesus in the New Testament in Manuel, in Matthew is called Emmanuel, which is the fulfillment of the promise of the divine name, God with us. These two people are not two different people, but the same person. Now, you've got to be careful there with that language. We think about we want to be proper in respect to the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God but three persons. But one pre-incarnate, one incarnate, right? So if we think of, um, of Yahweh as being translated, I will be, but it's actually, I will be with you. I will be with you. yod heh vav heh the Tetragrammaton, which the Jews would not even speak. When they come to it in the, in, the, in the Hebrew text, they don't pronounce the name. They'll say Hashem, the name, which means the name. Or they'll say Adonai, which means Lord. They won't even pronounce it, okay? Out of reverence, out of respect, out of fear for mispronouncing it. Um, that's why they don't even point the vowels in the text. But here he says this, I will be with you. And then in Matthew, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which is God with us. He's showing us, right, through the use of names. And the use of names in the Old Testament is a very important concept. It has, has so much meaning tied up in that. And he's showing us right there. I thought that was interesting. Um, then finally, I would just point you again to, uh, on page 13, Tim Keller's um, kind of famous um, short speech about the Bible is really not about you. It's about him. I think uh, he mentions, and I, and I put that in there because Miles mentions it at least twice now in two different lectures. He has mentioned that. And so um, you kind of get a sense for where Miles is coming from. These first few lectures are setting the table for a long feast on the law and the prophets and the writings. And um, it took Paul two years, speaking day, evening and morning and evening, um, probably every day, uh, we're going to have 30 minutes once a week for about over the course of just about a year, but we're going to give it a shot, right? And um, I just want to encourage you all to stay with your reading. If you're doing a Bible reading plan, um, we won't be able to match up exactly with it, but I think you'll be close enough to where we're at if you just began to kind of uh, that you'll you'll profit from. Uh, we'll be close enough to your schedule. We'll, you'll profit from the reading and. Um, uh, remind you again, you know, slow the replay speed down to three quarters. Print off that transcript. It'll help you answer the questions. And, and please be prepared if you can to, to answer questions or to answer some when we get here. Any other questions? Yes, sir? Thank you, and 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 I'm I pray I'm going to do my best to try to understand the material well enough that I I can explain some of these things in simple terms, um, but um, 
at the end, all the literature and the technical study, it's all fine and good and it's important and it's interesting and it's challenging, but it should all point us towards Christ. And as we said last, he said last week, if it doesn't give us hope, right, in him, then we're missing the true message of this, of the whole enterprise. So um, uh, I guess I'll go ahead and close this in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. Um, we thank you so much for your word, uh, all those who you inspired to write it, for, the, for us to know the truth about you and who we are called to be in your son. We love you. We thank you uh, for all things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.